The title I've given this morning's sermon is Jesus is King, and uh, there was a witness of that, there were witnesses of that, and there were worshipers because of that. Jesus is King. Uh, Up until this point in the book of John, uh, Jesus has done a variety of uh, miracles, which John refers to as signs. Uh, If you're driving down the road and you see a sign, the sign is going to tell you what's coming or what you should do in relationship to what's coming. Uh, you know, slow down, speed up, merge, don't merge, you know, whatever the case may be. And the signs that Jesus did, the miracles that Jesus did, were signs. They were pointing to Jesus and saying something about Jesus. And up until this moment in time, after every sign, Jesus told people, don't say anything at all. <laughs> you know, you've seen water turned into wine. Uh, You've seen uh, all of these different miracles that Jesus is doing. And he's told people, don't tell anybody. Uh, And of course, uh, nobody did that. (laughs) And they were like, I must tell everybody. I'm not sure if you've ever seen a miracle. uh, But if you did, uh, the first thing you would not do is not tell anybody. And so uh, it was making it hard for Jesus to get around. There were times where after Jesus had multiplied bread that people were like, we want want you to be our king because you've given us free food. And... (laughs) Uh, we want you to be the one who is in charge of all of, the, all of the things, and that would be much better for us and our economy and our having to work every day just so we can eat. And Jesus hid himself from becoming king uh, so that they wouldn't take him by force and make him king. And, and this day in our passage is different than any of the days up until that point. Because on this day, Jesus not only allowed himself to be uh, called king, but he He did all of the things that a king would do and should do if he was doing what Jesus did that day. And so we're going to look at how that's a little bit different. There's also a pretty big shift in the book of John, if you're familiar with the book of John. Up until this point, chapters 1 through 11 cover about three years of Jesus's life. From chapter 12 through the end of the book is like the last week. It's like half of the book of John is focused on one week of Jesus's life. And in fact, there are certain chapters that are just focused on a few hours of Jesus's life. And in fact, all of the Gospels, uh, the other Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, the Gospels who look at Jesus's life from the same perspective, uh, unlike John, he kind of has his own unique perspective on on Jesus's life. They all spend between uh, one third and two thirds of their Gospels talking about this last week of Jesus's life, because it's that significant in comparison to the rest of his life, which is not insignificant. John tells us that the purpose of his book in particular uh, is twofold. Uh, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 tell us that uh, truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so John is writing with the purpose that the reader reading it would come to a conclusion and a conviction a life change. The conclusion is that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Uh, Not only do the signs point to that, um, but that's the purpose why John wrote his book and why he included what he included and why he didn't include what he didn't include. He says he could have written a lot of other things. In fact, at the very end of the book, he says, I could have written so many stories about Jesus's life that I suppose that not even the world itself could contain the books, which might sound like hyperbole until you read like three or four chapters of one evening in Jesus's life in the book of John. <laughs> so if, if he's willing to be that detailed with certain uh, events in Jesus's life, I, I'm sure he could have produced quite a few books. 
But the focus of the book and, and the focus of this passage is of Jesus being king, but not just king, but king of our own lives, of the lives of everyone who would come in contact with him. And up till this point, there's been two responses to that claim to being the Messiah, that claim to being God in the flesh, that claim to being like, hey, I'm the one who God sent to save the world from their sins. Uh, the first is, you know, he is that. <laughs> uh, John chapter 7 uh, encapsulates this uh, division. He says, therefore, uh, John chapter 7, verse 40 and 41 it says, therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard these sayings, said, truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come from Galilee? Verse uh, 43 tells us, so there was a division among the people because of him. Uh, so Jesus had been dividing people up to this point, and we're going to see how that d dividing of people, based on who they thought Jesus was and what he would do, would continue. But the people who didn't believe didn't just not believe. They wanted to put Jesus to death. Like, we think what you're saying is so wrong that you deserve to die because you're claiming to be God, and we don't think you're God. Uh, and in that sense, they were right, except for the fact that they were wrong because Jesus was, in fact, uh, God in the flesh, and the signs he was performing were speaking to that end. And we're going to see how that intensifies, and we're going to see how that intensifies first with a witness of who Jesus is. Uh, notice in verses 9 through 11, a changed life, uh, a life changed by Jesus is a witness of Jesus. A life changed by Jesus is a witness of Jesus. Notice what it says in verse 9 through 11 again. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, that's Jesus, uh, just on the outside of Jerusalem waiting to come in. And they came not for Jesus's sake only, but, they, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Notice first that Lazarus' life was changed by Jesus quite drastically. Um, we're not talking about minor improvements. Uh, he was all the way dead. Uh, if you want to read the story, uh, chapter 11 in John has the, the full account. Uh, Lazarus was sick. Uh, some friends sent messengers to Jesus, and they said, Jesus, your friend Lazarus is sick. And Jesus is like, got it. We're going to hang out here for a couple days. And then... Uh, the disciples were like, why aren't we going? And he's like, Lazarus rests. And they're like, oh, well, if he rests, he's going to get better. And he's like, no, he died. <laughs> he was like trying to be soft and, you know, use a euphemism of like, you know, he's, he's not with us anymore. And they're like, oh, that's, that's not good. And he's like, well, let's go. And they're like, don't they want to kill you over there? And he's like, yeah, but we're going to go anyway. And so Thomas, the, the guy who doubted that Jesus rose from the dead and after he rose from the dead and then Jesus showed him that Thomas, he was like, well, let's all go and die with Jesus then. <laughs> and Jesus is like, that's not what we're going to go do, but let, let's go. And so they get there and not only had he died, he'd been dead and buried for like four days. And uh, one of the shortest verses in, in the Bible that um, many youth have memorized to get prizes for memorizing verses uh, is, is recorded there, Jesus wept uh, at the tomb. And it, he wept with those who wept. And he sorrowed like we all sorrow over death because it's not the way God created things to be. And yet, it would seem moments after that, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He calls Lazarus out of the grave and 
Lazarus was dead. And like they, when Jesus was like, hey, open up the tomb, they're like, it's going gonna, it's gonna to smell bad. <laughs> it's a bad plan. Don't open up the tomb. <laughs> he's like, no, trust me. <laughs> so he, he raises Lazarus up, and like Lazarus comes out, and he's all wrapped up, and he's like, hey, to the people around, like, will you unwrap him? And Jesus did the hard work <laughs> of raising him to life. He's like, but he delegated the, the work we could do, which is, you know, unwrapping. And so he, he brought him out. And his, his life was a witness of Jesus. Just his existence was a witness <laughs> of Jesus. He didn't have to say anything. He just looked at him. You know, like, all right, <laughs> right? This is not the kind of witness you have. You need ears to hear. This is the kind of witness that you need eyes to see. And that's what they came to do. Did you notice there at the end of verse 9, they came also to see Lazarus. Because Lazarus, just existing, said something about Jesus. And that witness, Lazarus' life, uh, it was not only changed, that was why it was a witness, but it was a witness just in ex- existence. Similar to creation, uh, Psalm chapter 19, it tells us that uh, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament show his handiwork day unto day, utter speech, night unto night, reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. You look at it, creation that is, and you're like, Somebody very big and very powerful made this. <laughs> and that's what all of creation is saying all of the time. Even in a fallen creation state, you can still see God's design in it. In a very similar way, if you've, uh, well, I'll speak on, on my own behalf. Uh, I've ruined some cars in my, my driving experience, but even after I've crashed them, you can tell that there was design in them. <laughs> right? That I've ruined it. It's marred. It's not what it was. But you can still see that there was a designer in it. And, and creation is the same way. You can look at creation, and if you're looking at it right, you're going to hear a testimony. It's witnessing of someone. And, and Lazarus's life, just his existence, was similar. Uh, I had a, a, a quick illustration of this happen in my own house uh, last night. Uh, I had a friend over, and I have a little 4x4 uh, four four Rubik's Cube. Uh, which doesn't seem like it should be impossible to fix, um, but I have never done it. And so my friend with the power of technology uh, made all four sides the same. And uh, we just left it on the couch, and my, my kids walked up, and they're like, whoa! <laughs> Who did that? They knew that it was messed up, and now it wasn't messed up anymore. And they knew that it didn't unmess itself up. It, it was a witness. <laughs> to uh, an app <laughs> and somebody willing to use the app <laughs> to, to fix it, right? It was a witness all by itself. It was saying something about someone. And when my kids saw it, they're like, I don't know who did that, but I want to know. <laughs> right? It's, it's still a witness at my house. now. I haven't messed it up. I was going to bring it. <laughs> and uh, I forgot. So anyway, that's it's the, the Rubik's Cube witness. Um, what was it saying? What was it saying? Uh, the testimony of a changed life says, uh, look, at what can, look at what Jesus can do. Look at what Jesus did for me. Jesus can do this for you. That's what a, a life changed by Jesus says. It says a lot. And you haven't even said anything. <laughs> right? In, in Lazarus' case, it's that Jesus is king over death. 
the very first promise of what the Messiah would do was that he would conquer sin and death. Sin is the penalty of death. The wages of sin is death. God told Adam and Eve in the garden, hey, if you eat this fruit, you shall surely die. And then they did it, and we've been dying ever since. We're born spiritually dead. And Lazarus is standing there after having been dead, and his life is testifying to all of these things. The effect of his witness, notice there in verses 10 and 11, there are two. Uh, well, we'll notice the positive and probably the easiest one to guess at, verse 11, uh, because on account of him, that is Lazarus, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. He was a sign. His life was the witness. It was testifying that Jesus is king. And when people saw him, they're like, Jesus is king. <laughs> he was dead. I was at his funeral. <laughs> He's not dead anymore. I don't know how to explain that. <laughs> and there were people who, when they saw and when they heard the testimony of this witness, they were like, I, I, I can believe in Jesus now. Because of the work that God had accomplished in Lazarus' life. But there was a second group, maybe surprising, uh, verse 10. It says, but the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also. Uh, the also is the key to understanding why. Uh, the also refers to the fact that earlier in chapter 11, uh, the chief priests gathered together and they're like, Jesus has done a notable miracle. He's raised Lazarus from the dead. Everybody's going to start following him rather than following us. So the only logical solution is we need to kill him. <laughs> and so they, they hated Jesus, <laughs> but they didn't just hate Jesus, but they hated the things that reminded them of Jesus. That was Lazarus. They were plotting to put him to death. Lazarus has done nothing except exist. <laughs> like, what did I do? I was dead. I had zero participation in this. Jesus did not ask my permission. <laughs> he just raised me from the dead. <laughs> and now they're plotting to kill him because he reminds them of Jesus and the power and the place that he has that they want. I heard a quote earlier this uh, week that I think was kind of on, on the same point. Uh, if you hate the truth, then telling the truth is going to sound a lot like hate. And that's what Lazarus' life was doing. Jesus actually would explain this very principle to his disciples later on in John chapter uh, 15, verse 18. Jesus says, if the world hates you, because you're you know, being obedient and you just exist. <laughs> you know that it hated me before it hated you. A life that is changed by Jesus will be a witness to Jesus. And the effect of that is it will either draw people to Jesus or it'll make people hate you because they hate Jesus. So the first witness of the king was a witness just by existing. His life was the witness. But there's a second group of witnesses. Uh, we're going to jump down to verse 17 through 19. Notice there's witnesses. Those who, see God's, those who see God work can bear witness of that work. Because Lazarus and Jesus weren't by themselves when this thing happened. Lazarus and Jesus 
had a group of people that were there. This didn't happen in a corner. This wasn't like some, nobody saw it happening. There were witnesses. Notice there in verse 17, therefore the people, and notice how it defines these people, who were with him, that's Jesus, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him up from the dead, bore witness. They had seen something, and because they had seen something, they could say something. Not everybody that was there, but there were people there who, when they saw God work, their life wasn't the witness, but they had a witness. They had witnessed God do work. They didn't experience it themselves, but they they saw it clear as day. And because they could, they did. They were witnesses because they saw it, but they also chose to do something with that. They bore witness. Uh, in the same way that if you witness a car accident or you know some crime and they call you into a courtroom, they're like, were you there? What did you see? And you're, you're giving your testimony of what you witnessed. And in the same way, uh, we have Amazon and their reviews. I'm like, I got this thing. It looked awesome online, but when I got it in real life, it was like two inches. <laughs> I was hoping it would be two feet. <laughs> One star review, <laughs> right? They're bearing witness of their experience. They're giving you their testimony. And in the same way, uh, if you've been around believers or if you've been a believer and you've been around, you've seen some things. You can testify to some things. You can say something because you've seen God work. That's one of my favorite things to do uh, when I'm around believers who've been walking around uh, with the Lord for a while. As I just ask them, what are some of the like, top two or three biggest things you've ever seen the Lord do in your life? And it's like always oh, like, wow, yeah, God definitely exists. and <laughs> He definitely did that work. It's one of those things that uh, in the Old Testament, in the book of uh, Malachi, the last Old Testament minor prophet, uh, he says, when, when his people gathered together and they shared these stories, God's writing them down in a book. It's not that he doesn't know that. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I did that? Oh, yeah, I forgot. I wrote that down. I, I sometimes look at pictures in my own you know, album sometimes. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I did that thing. I totally forgot that I went to a different country. I'm like, who knew? God doesn't forget these things, but God treasures the testimony and the testifying of his work amongst his people. And that's what was happening here when after Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, those who were there who were now, you know, amongst the other people who are singing Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, this is the king. They're like, yeah, 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 he is the king. Let me tell you my story of what I saw him do. And that's a story worth sharing. That, that's a witness their witness was with words. You wouldn't know what they knew just by looking at them unless they said something. So there are aspects of our lives that are just going to be a witness just because God changed us. There are other aspects where unless we use our words, nobody's ever going to know. Because they had seen something, they could say something, and at the right time, they shared their testimony with all of these other people who had no uh, had, didn't have as deep of an understanding of who it was they were talking about when they were singing Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
What did they witness? Well, they witnessed two things in particular. Verse 17 tells us they witnessed uh, when he, uh, Jesus, called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead. I'm not sure if you were at an event like that, if you would ever stop talking about it, but I would be like, you know, <laughs> you're at a random party. You're like, yeah, so one time I was with Jesus. <laughs> right? I would, I would have that story down, and I would, that would be the first story I would ever share. Um, they were there, and they saw it. The effect of their witness, not unlike the effect of the first witness that we saw, verse 18 and 19, verse 18, uh, many came to Jesus. For this reason, verse 18 tells us, for this reason, the people also met him because they heard he had done this sign. People were coming to Jesus based on the verbal testimony of what other people saw people do, uh, what other people saw Jesus do in others' lives. But again, not everybody was happy and wanting to come to Jesus. Uh, we have the Pharisees there also uh, in verse 19. Uh, uh, they were a little exasperated by all of this, right? They're planning on killing Jesus. Uh, they're planning on killing Lazarus. Then Jesus comes, makes this triumphal entry. Everybody's worshiping him. And they're like, well, this is what they say. See, you are accomplishing nothing. They're talking to themselves, amongst themselves. Like, we want to suppress him, and now everybody's worshiping him as king. <laughs> like, if you've ever had a goal, and that was your goal, and then this happened, you would feel the same way. Like, we're accomplishing nothing. And then their conclusion is a, a testimony of the power of the witnesses that were there. The life that was a witness, and those who were bearing witness. And says, look, the world has gone after him. That means the witnesses did the right thing, right? We're not responsible for how people receive our, our testimony or how people receive our witnessing. But this is the goal, right? Like if you went out witnessing and you came back and, and your enemies who didn't want you to be successful in witnessing, their report of your time witnessing was, well, the world went after them. <laughs> like That's a good report. Our last point that I want to spend a little bit more time on is that world that they describe here that has come after him. So we're going to back it up, back it up to uh, verse 12 through 16, and we're going to look at some worshipers. Verses 12 through 16, worshipers. Worshipers openly acknowledge Jesus as their king. Worshipers openly acknowledge Jesus as their king. And that's what we see happening right in the middle of these two witnesses. The life that's a witness, these group of people who had witnessed Jesus perform the sign, the worshipers openly acknowledge Jesus as their king. Notice verse 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, uh, when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees, and they went out to meet him. So this particular Sunday uh, is a very unique Sunday in history. And uh, when Jesus was coming, uh, it, it notes it in our text here uh, it, briefly. It just says uh, the, the multitude that had come to the feast. Uh, that feast was Passover. The multitude uh, was very large. Uh, according to uh, the historian Josephus, there was 250,000 lambs that were sacrificed that week in Jerusalem. Uh, so if you imagine, so I, I've been to Jerusalem and the topography, 
the landscape, the hills and the valley and everything like that, is not unlike Valley Springs. So imagine two and a half, you know, uh, 250,000 sheep being brought into like Valley Springs <laughs> and, and being slaughtered for Passover. And they, they guesstimate, because they weren't counting people for a variety of reasons, uh, but they guesstimate that there's about, uh, uh, for every family there was a sheep and there was about 10 people in the average family. So it's about two and a half million people coming. So it's not like a small crowd of people. <laughs> this is like at its breaking point of like just people trying to find rooms and inns and those kinds of things. So like there's, there's a lot of people. There was a lot of people who had come for the feast. And it says of that group of people, there were those who had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And the worshipers, the worshipers came to worship Jesus. And they came ready to worship. Notice there in verse 13. Well, verse, at the end of verse 12, they came to worship Jesus. Uh, when they heard that Jesus was there uh, coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches, uh, branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna. So they came ready to worship Jesus, not just with the right song at the right time, but they even brought stuff. Uh, the other gospels tells us that they were throwing things on the, on the ground for him, uh, like their coats and other things. They were, they were giving him the welcome that was typical of a king. The song that they're singing is Psalm 118, and it's the song that they would sing whenever a king would come into Jerusalem, like open up the gates, let the king in, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and it was a foreshadow of this moment in history because they were kings that were shadows of which Jesus was the substance. They were coming in the name of the Lord, but he wasn't just coming in the name of the Lord, he was also the Lord. <laughs> he was coming in the name of his father, and he perfectly represented the Father. That's what it means to come in the name. It, like, I'll give you an at-home example, and then we'll bring it back to Scripture. So the at-home example is if uh, my son came into the kitchen where I was at, and he, he said, can I uh, have some ice cream? Mom said I could. He's coming in, he's coming in the name of, of Mom. Uh, what he's claiming is that what he's asking for is consistent with the character and nature of mom. <laughs> this is what mom would want if she was here. <laughs> I'm like, we're just about to have dinner? <laughs> I don't think that's what mom said. <laughs> right? Or maybe it's after dinner, we are, like mom and I already talked, I'm like, yeah, I know that mom, yes, you can have that. But when you come in the name of someone, you're, you're representing their character and their will. And Jesus does that more perfectly than any other king had ever done. And so when they're, they're worshiping, they're praising with a, a, a processional song, a song that would have been sung lots of other times on other occasions when other kings were coming into Jerusalem, and they were on their way to the temple, and they were thanking God, essentially, for having a king who was seeking after God. But this psalm also has uh, messianic prophecies kind of built into it. It, it. it had some fulfillment in a king coming, but it had its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus coming as king here. So the worshipers came to worship Jesus. And then the worshipers worshiped Jesus. They cried out with this psalm. It's Psalm 118. There's uh, a dear uh, lady um, 
that when I was growing up in church uh, at, a, at a Baptist church, every Sunday morning, uh, it was the same quotation from Psalm uh, 118, a few verses earlier. It says, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And every Sunday, Sister Flo would come in and say at the top of her lungs, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. The context of that is this day in history when Jesus came. Uh, there's some prophecies that are built into this. Uh, we're not going to take the time to go into that, but uh, if you're a student of Scripture, I would encourage you to look into that. Uh, Daniel has something to say about when Jesus would come from a certain time period to another time period, and to the day. <laughs> that was the day. Uh, historians uh, have calculated it um, out and have a specific date for it, but when the psalmist was writing, this is the day that the Lord has made, he was talking specifically about the day that the Messiah would come as king into Jerusalem. That's the psalm they're singing. And what the, the psalm that uh, John quotes out of it, because it's a much longer psalm, is uh, verses 25 and 26. Uh, in, in John, he gives us a transliteration of the first word. A transliteration is where you have um, a word in an original language, and instead of translating it, you just uh, take the sounds of that word. Like sometimes, like if I share with you the Greek word agape, I'm giving you what it sounds like in English for that Greek word. And he did the same thing for the Hebrew word. And so that first word is Hosanna. We sang it this morning. Uh, if you go back and read Psalm 118, verse 25, it doesn't say Hosanna, because that's the Hebrew word behind it. It translates it in our English translations for us. Uh, and it's save now is, is the request. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. That's the whole verse. He encapsulates that in one transliterated word, Hosanna. Um, sometimes when we gather together to pray, we, we give God thanks for things, and other times we ask God for help for things. And we, we ask for help. We call those prayer requests. Uh, when it's in a song, you can do the same thing. Sometimes songs are just open and public prayers. We're, we're declaring to God what's in our mind and on our hearts and uh, what we would like him to do for us. Or we're just declaring the truth. Like, God, you're powerful. You are worthy of our praise. Like, those are just truths. Here we have a, a praise request. Uh, they're asking of God to do something of which the witnesses up to this point have been pointing everyone to. The goal of these witnesses is to get the people, the multitude, to say what they're saying here. They're asking Jesus to save them. They're asking the king who is king over sin and death to be their king, to conquer sin and death in their own life. Having seen the witness, having heard the witnesses, they say, Hosanna, save now, I pray, O Lord. And they back it up with that declaration of truth. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord the king of Israel. They openly acknowledge Jesus as their king. There's like people plotting his death, and they're like, praise Jesus. 
the significance of their worship is this. Uh, and he, it's unpacked by John for us, so I, I'm not going to give the, the explanation. I'm going to just read John's explanation. Uh, we are told in, there in verse uh, 14 and forward uh, the significance. Uh, then Jesus, uh, when he had found a donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Uh, that's an Old Testament prophecy uh, from uh, Zechariah uh, chapter 9, verse 9, uh, where it's just a prophecy about uh, the coming Savior of the world and how he would come is like this, and he's, he's going to come sitting on a, the colt of a donkey. Uh, the other Gospels go into greater detail about how he got that donkey. He sends his disciples to go get a donkey, and he's like, if somebody says, hey, what are you doing? They're like, just tell the master, just tell him the master has need of them. And uh, Kind of sounds like a sketchy job. If you were to like, ask me to do that for you, I'd be like, I don't know. <laughs> they do it. They're faithful. And they're like, the guy lets him go, um, takes the donkey, takes him to Jesus. Uh, they put clothes on, uh, their coats on the donkey. Jesus sits on the donkey and comes into, into Jerusalem sitting on a donkey. Kings would come into their hometowns or into in Jerusalem in particular in one of two ways. When they were coming in peace, they would be on a donkey, uh, but they, weren't, they were coming for war, they were on a horse. And Jesus, the first time he came, came sitting on a donkey, Prince of Peace. Uh, the book of Revelation tells us he does have another four-footed animal uh, that he's going to be bringing in the not-too-distant future, uh, when he's going to come and as a conquering king. But the first time he came, in this time when he came, he came seated on a donkey. He came in peace. Uh, and there's this prophecy that totally backs it up. John's explaining it, uh, and then uh, he, he says, uh, verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. I'm not sure if that's as, as encouraging to you as it is to me. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure how much of life I've lived in. I didn't understand the thing. Now I've got a better understanding of the thing. Uh, there's a, a guy I see some uh, times on the social medias uh, and he's like in his 30s and he's, his, his, his reels always start off the same way. He's like, I just found out today and I'm 30, you know, whatever, that this thing does this. And he's like, how did I live my whole life without knowing these things? <laughs> I'm sure the disciples felt similarly during the whole time of Jesus's life up until after his resurrection. That's what John says. The disciples did not understand these things, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things were written about him and that they had done these things to them. They were fulfilling scripture, and they didn't even know it. They didn't know it. They were almost clueless to what's going on here. They didn't know the significance of what was going on until afterwards. We're, we're told in the book of, um, in the gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter uh, 24, verse 44 and forward, uh, that Jesus was walking on a road to Emmaus, uh, and he explained to the disciples who were completely bummed that Jesus had died, and like he's walking with them. <laughs> he's like, hid himself from knowing who he was. And it says that he explained from all of the Old Testament, the law and the Psalms and the prophets, how all of Jesus's life was a fulfillment of scripture, which I really wish if there was like one Bible study that was taught that could have been recorded, that would have been a really sweet one. <laughs> but that's when they understood is when Jesus had to lay it out and spell it out to them. He's like, look, this is what has happened. This is why it happened. Fulfilled prophecy, fulfilled prophecy. Everything that God said would happen has happened. 
it, everything, even me sitting on a donkey. <laughs> that, that was part of it. They didn't get what was going on until later. And yet God allowed them to be not just a part of it, but a central part of it. Like they were the one who got the donkey. <laughs> they're like walking along and they're like, why is everybody like worshiping him as king? <laughs> like, I don't get it. I don't know. I don't know. You know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the conversation was like between the disciples at that time, but afterwards, when they realized that the testimony was true, that Jesus is king over sin and death, because he, he presented not just somebody else alive from the dead, but himself alive from the dead. It was when he was glorified that they understood. Even though he was being glorified uh, by everyone there that day, they were saying the right words at the right time. Everything that was, should have been said was being said. Uh, another gospel tells us that you know, the Pharisees are like, do you hear what they're saying? They shouldn't say that. And he said, if they didn't say it, the rocks would cry out. <laughs> right? Somebody's going to say it. And they got, to, they, they got to be the ones that said it. If you're uh, a new believer... you should know that your new life in Christ is a witness to the power of God. You don't have to say anything. Just your life being touched and changed by God is going to say a lot. Some will want to know your Jesus because of it. Others will hate you because you remind them of him. As a believer, you will see God do some pretty awesome things in your life. If you see him do an awesome work, tell others about what you've seen him do. We worship by acknowledging God, uh, who he is, and by asking him for help. And that very first step, if you're a new believer, you've already done you, you said it already. Lord, save me. <laughs> save me from the sin in my life that would dominate and rule my life. Save me from the penalty of sin, which is death and separation from God forever. And ultimately, save me from the very presence of sin. That's what heaven is. Heaven is a place where nobody's sinning. Because they're all submitted to King Jesus. That's the hope that we have. If you're a mature believer this morning, uh, the good work that God began in you, that new life that he's given to you, are you trying to complete it apart from him? Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Paul, writing to the Galatians, said, uh, are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are you now trying to be made perfect in the flesh? It took God's work in you to get you where you're at. Lazarus couldn't make himself any more alive by the obedience that he had or did not have. He just needed to live and be alive. He was not going to add to, the, the, to how alive he was. God has begun a, a work in you. Let him continue that work in you. If you're a mature believer, you have seen God do a lot. And you've probably told a lot of people some of the biggest things he's done for you and the things that you've seen. When was the last time you shared that testimony? 
are there some new believers even in this fellowship that could be encouraged by some of the big things that God has done for you? I have found in my own life that in just sharing with others some of the big things that God has done for me, it's not only good for them, but it's good for me. How God has uh, demonstrated his strength in my weaknesses uh, throughout my life, there are many. That's the uh, advantage of being very weak, is that God gets to be your strength in many areas of your life. So there's that. Don't get tired of sharing what you've seen. If you're not a believer here this morning, if you would not call yourself a Christian, uh, the hope that you need is the hope that Jesus offers, which is freedom from the power of sin in your life, constantly making the wrong choices, doing the wrong thing at the wrong time, and you finally see it for what it is. It's destroying your life. It's destroying the life of those that you love. I'm currently reading through the book of uh, Judges, which is basically people walking with the Lord and then choosing not to walk with the Lord and then they're in judgment until they finally get tired of living under God's wrath and the, the poor choices that they've made, the hole that they've dug for themselves, they get tired of it. And the part that's amazed me recently is how long some stay there. It's like 40 years they were oppressed, and then they cried out to the Lord, save now. Are you tired? Are you done? Jesus is king over sin and death. He sets free those who have been made captive. The Bible tells us if we confess our sins, uh, he is faithful and just to forgive us that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Don't leave here, if that's you, without allowing God to make your life a witness of the power of Jesus. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer, invite the worship team up, and uh, invite the men forward to uh, pass out uh, the elements as we uh, celebrate communion together. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for you, Lord, for saving us from ourselves and the foolish choices we would make. Uh, Lord, you have done more than we could ever ask or think. You sent your son uh, to be worshiped as king and yet to also die on a cross for our sins. But he didn't stay dead. <laughs> in, in demonstration of our sinfulness, he died on the cross, but in demonstration of the life we can have in him, Lord, you raised him up. God, we thank you uh, for making us witnesses. Lord, that our lives would speak of you without us having to say a word. Lord, we thank you for allowing us to see you do some pretty awesome things and allowing us to use our words to point others to you. Lord, we thank you for uh, your willingness to let us worship you as imperfect as we are. Lord, we want to openly acknowledge you as our king. Lord, we thank you for you. In Jesus' name we pray.